Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Job 1, 8 through 22. Entonces, el Señor le preguntó, ¿Y no has pensado en mi siervo Job? ¿Acaso has visto a alguien con una conducta tan intachable como él? No le hace ningún mal a nadie, es temeroso de Dios. Pero Satanás le respondió al Señor, ¿Y acaso Job teme a Dios sin reci recibir nada a cambio? ¿Acaso no lo proteges a él y a su familia y a todo lo que tiene? Tú bendices todo lo que hace y aumentas sus riquezas en esta tierra. Pero pon tu mano sobre todo lo que tiene y verás como blasfema contra ti y en tu propia cara. Entonces el Señor le res, eh, respondió a Satanás, ahí está Job, haz lo que quieras con todas sus riquezas, pero te prohíbo que a él le hagas daño. Y dicho esto, Satanás salió de la presencia del Señor. Un día, mientras los hijos y las hijas de Job comían y bebían en la casa del hermano mayor, llegó un mensajero a la casa de Job y le dijo, Estábamos arando el campo con los bullos y las asnas pasían cerca, cuando de pronto llegaron los sabeos y nos atacaron, y mataron a las pastores y se llevaron los animales. Solo yo pude escapar para traerte la noticia. Todavía estaba hablando el mensajero cuando llegó otro y dijo, Dios permitió que del cielo cayera un fuego destructor que fulminó a tus ovejas y a los pastores. Todo lo consumió. Solo yo pude escapar para traerte la noticia. Enseguida llegó otro mensajero con otra mala noticia. Tres escuadrones de caldeos llegaron y atacaron a los criados y se llevaron los camellos. Solo yo podía escapar para traerte la noticia. Aún no terminaba de hablar este hombre cuando llegó otro con esta noticia. Tus hijos y tus hijas estaban comiendo y bebiendo en casa de su hermano mayor cuando del desierto llegó un fuerte tornado y azotó la casa y estaba se derrumbó sobre tus hijos y los mató. Solo yo pude escapar para darte la noticia. Entonces Job se levantó y se rasgó las vestiduras, se rapó la cabeza en señal de luto y con el rostro en tierra adoró al Señor. Mientras decía, desnudo salí del vientre de mi madre, desnudo volveré al sepulcro. El Señor me dio y el Señor me quitó. Bendito sea el nombre del Señor. Y en todo esto Job no pecó ni le atribuyó al Señor Thank you, Hannah. So one of the most common uh, unifying things about humanity across time uh, and cultures is the reality that we are all going to at some point suffer. All of us will. 
And even if uh, we're able to, um, in one way or another, avoid the worst kind of suffering that this world uh, has to offer, no one can avoid the ultimate end of all suffering, which of course is death. Right? The greatest kings and emperors and oligarchs um, and the like, those who have held the most power met the same fate as those who were the lowliest uh, of their subjects. Now, we all are going to suffer and will continue to suffer. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. That's all I have to say. Um, what are we going to make of that reality? Well, every world religion, every philosophy that the world has ever known has wrestled with what to make of the presence of suffering in this world. But while uh, you might expect this to hear, uh, you might expect to hear this from uh, a Christian pastor, uh, the Christian perspective on suffering is unique when compared to every other perspective that the world has to offer. And over the next six weeks, we are going to look at why that is the case. Uh, today, we're going to start our Lent series, uh, a series that we're calling uh, A Public Witness, Lessons and Sufferings. This is going to be uh, a series walking through the various themes found in the book of Job. Uh, and what we're going to see in the book of Job is, is treatment of suffering unlike anywhere else, that you'll find anywhere else. And to the point of the series, our, and also our current season that we're in, our, our public faith season, when Christians recognize and respond to the Christian perspective of suffering, Christians become a public witness to a world that is suffering. Though Christians will suffer the same pains as anyone else, in the midst of that suffering, Christians suffer differently. They have a realistic hope that is actually a testament to the goodness of God, even in the midst of suffering. And today, as we start the series, we're going to consider uh, the first aspect of Christian suffering. What makes Christian suffering different is the trust that Christians ought to have in the midst of suffering. So with that in mind, I'm first going to switch mics because it's going to drive me crazy. There, there we go. Sorry. Okay. Um, so with that in mind, let's understand uh, a bit of the context of Job and the trust that we see here amidst the suffering by considering how the book of Job is a particular kind of story. It's a story of suffering. It's a story of trust, but then it's also a story of God. Let's look at each of those. So what is the book of Job? Well, it's actually a difficult question to answer. The book of Job is a very unique kind of book. In many ways, uh, the book is actually this epic uh, poetic narrative describing the life and experiences of this man named Job. It records conversations between God and Satan, between uh, Job and his friends, and then finally what we see at the end of the book is this conversation between God and Job himself. Now, though this is uh, a massive poem, which it is, it doesn't mean that the poem isn't reflecting on actual historical events that took place. Uh, because the Bible actually does this all the time, where it uses poetry, uses this poetic flair to emphasize particular real events that would have happened. Additionally, uh, the date of the book of Job, uh, which is a little bit of a debated thing, but what seems very possible 
is that the events of Job are some of the earliest events recorded in the Bible. I say all of that just to say it's a very unique book. There's a lot of poetry built in it, but it's also a story, a true story, an old, old story that has been influential for millennia. And what exactly is that story? Well, it's a story that shows us how we ought to approach suffering. And the story gives really three vantage points. It gives us a vantage point of suffering from the perspective of God. It gives us a, a vantage point of suffering from the perspective of Job. And then it also gives us a vantage point of uh, suffering from earthly wisdom that will be expressed through Job's friends. That In the coming weeks, uh, we're going to look at each one of those uh, vantage points. But for now, let's consider what we just heard read. Because the story begins uh, with uh, describing Job as this wealthy, successful, and yet upright, God-fearing, righteous man. Right? Job's a good guy. The story, though, then turns to a discussion between God and Satan about Job. And in that conversation, Satan basically says to God, listen, the only reason Job is upright and righteous is because of how you've blessed him. And if you take all of that away from him, watch and see. He's going to curse you. And God's response to Satan is essentially, okay, I will permit you to take everything away from him and we'll see. But you are not allowed to kill him. So Satan then goes. He inflicts this terrible suffering upon Job. Job loses his children. He loses his home. He loses his livestock, his, his wealth. All of it's taken from him. Now, there's a lot that we, we do need to process, uh, that we will process over, over the coming weeks. But for now, I want us to notice something striking that we learn about suffering in just that little bit of narrative. Because there are several um, realities that immediately undermine our typical perspective on why we suffer. More than likely, we have believed in some way or another the things that I'm about to describe when it comes to suffering. First, one typical belief about suffering is that suffering is somehow the result of a lack of faith in God or that it's uh, the result of God's punishing hand. That's one perspective that some take on suffering. Another perspective of suffering, though, is that suffering is the result of, of God's lack of control or maybe, his, uh, maybe whether or not he even exists at all. Those are two very typical understandings and perspectives on suffering. Either it's the result of my lack of faith, or maybe it's just because God's not in control, or maybe he's not even there, both of which I want to consider quickly. First, consider this, this notion of what it means for suffering to be the result of our lack of faith in God in some way, right? Something, some, some um, consequence that's come as a result of our failure. I think for many of us, You've probably been all too familiar with that assumption about suffering, that suffering is somehow directly tied to our sin or our, some kind of lack of faith in our life. And of course, we know that sin does come with particular kinds of consequences, right? Sin leads to consequences. If I go out and I drive recklessly and I, as a result, hurt myself and I hurt someone else, it's a consequence, right? There are obvious consequences for doing certain things wrong, but... That is not the same thing as assuming that when we suffer, it is because God in some way is punishing us 
for failure or some kind of lack of faith in him. And so it's important for us to note that on the one hand, yes, there's going to be consequences to our sin, but we also need to see here, what we're seeing in the story, is we're seeing a man have sickness, death, impoverishment thrust upon him. And yet, in all of that, he had been a righteous and blameless man, Job. What we see is Job is here, in Job, he is suffering severely, yet he was nonetheless an upstanding, righteous, godly man. He did nothing to deserve this uh, suffering. In fact, the reason he is suffering was precisely because he was identified as a righteous man. Plus, don't miss the fact that suffering here is not by the hand of God, but by the hand of Satan. You know, considering that thought, one uh, theologian had uh, made this argument, and I'm just, let me just read this to you. He said that when God made the world, he didn't make disease in it. He didn't make natural disasters. That's not the world God made. It wasn't a world in which windstorms came and knocked over houses and killed everybody in them. It wasn't a place of death. Disease, disaster, and death are not things God actually made. They're in this world, but he didn't directly make them. They are forces of darkness that were unleashed when we turned away from God, when we rebelled against God. The fabric of the world began to unravel. When, when we unleashed those forces. So, the point being, we see God here is not actively desiring or deliberately or intentionally creating the suffering that comes into Job's life. We see very clearly that it's Satan is, uh, is the one who's doing it. And to go one step further, when we say that sickness and death and the like are viewed as either the result of... of uh, one's lack of faith or by the hands of God. That assumption, more often than not, is a lie of Satan seeking to put into doubt the character of God. One of the things that, um, I was just recently having a conversation with someone about this, that there were, there were those that were attempting to promote the idea that if one just has enough faith, then the sickness that they're experiencing, they can be liberated from that sickness, if they just had enough faith. And that's a very common perspective amongst some. But one of the things that I find heartbreaking about that reality is that it doesn't even come close to understanding what the Bible has to teach us about suffering. Because we believe in a God that absolutely can take suffering. We believe in a God that can absolutely heal should he desire. But that does not mean that he always will and so we have to wrestle with the reality that suffering is present, even amongst those with a deep faith, a deep trust in God. One of the other things that we see here is that there's uh, the other reason that often people assume suffering comes, uh, is that if God does exist, then he must not care, right? He's, he's unable to intervene. He's powerless against suffering. But that's not, again, what we see here at all. In fact, first of all, the suffering does not happen except by God's permission in this narrative. He is in complete and total control, so much so that he keeps Satan on a bit of a leash in this entire thing. He basically says uh, to Satan, listen, yes, you can test him to a, a certain degree, but you are not allowed to go any further. 
So while this doesn't explain why God has allowed the suffering, it certainly shows us that he's not, it's not out of his control or even his permission. And so for the rest of the book, there are going to be these conversations about these uh, two different perspectives on suffering. Right? The, the conversations that you see throughout the book of Job that he has with his friends in particular exhaust all of these arguments about suffering being the result of you know, lack of one's faith or God's lack of control or character. But here in the first 10 verses, we see that neither one of those perspectives are sufficient or true from a biblical perspective. Suffering is not the result of one's lack of faith. Suffering is not the result of God's lack of control. It's something else. And what we see is that it's not only in this, not only is Job in this story in particular, a story of suffering, but it's also, it's important to see, a story of trust, which now begins to move us toward a little bit more of an answer as to why suffering exists. Let's look, let's look at that. Look at uh, verses uh, 20 through 22. At this, Job got up, right? So this is after he's learned that he's lost everything. At this, Job got up and he tore his robe and shaved his head. He then fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What is this? Well, this is a man who even in the midst of the worst suffering that one can endure, loses everything, recognizes the goodness of God in the midst of it all. Right? This is a man with a complete and total trust that no matter what God allows to befall him, God is still worthy of worship and adoration and submission and trust. And when the Lord gives, it's so often, I mean, um, Luis just prayed this prayer so often when the Lord is giving us good things, it's easy for us to say, the name of the Lord be praised. But what happens when the very things that once caused us to praise God are taken from us? Is our reaction still, the name of the Lord be praised? You know, uh, several years ago, I've made reference to this before, but several years ago, I was uh, reading a story of a pastor who was under persecution under Boko Haram in Nigeria uh, several years ago. And in an article about the pastor, his name was Pastor Omu, the journalist recounts uh, Pastor Omu's story. And he said this about Pastor Omu. He says, as the attackers held a knife to his throat, a gunshot fired outside the church and they fled. During another attack, he was hit with a machete on his head his neck and his back. Pastor Omu says, his main source of comfort has been that Jesus said this would happen. And since persecution is certainly taking place, he reasons that surely Christ's other promises are true as well. Here's what struck me about that story and that perspective. This is someone, Pastor Omu, is someone who has been obviously deeply shaped by the perspective and posture of Job. It is saying, God, this world, as a result of sin and Satan's schemes, is a world of suffering. And you promised suffering will happen. And so I will trust that if you 
said that was going to happen and it's happening, I trust that everything else that you have promised will also come to pass. I trust all your promises. So despite what comes, may the name of the Lord be praised. That is quite the perspective. It is quite a story of trust in the hand of God. And now I'm not going to name all the different ways that we will suffer. Many of us, even as we're talking about suffering, immediately things are coming to mind about ways that you have suffered. But I wonder, as those instances now come to mind, or maybe even as you think about the things that you're currently in the midst of now, have we fallen prey to Satan's schemes to try to make us curse God in the midst of that suffering? Have we assumed that suffering is somehow the result of our lack of faith or the result of God's merciless retribution or that God is just not capable or powerful enough to intervene? Or do we, like Job, say no matter what comes, I will trust the Lord and will as a result praise his name? Or like Pastor Omu, I will find comfort in my suffering because, because I suffer. I trust that all the other promises of God will come true. Of course, having said all of that, right? having said that we ought to be trusting God in the midst of all of these things, it really does beg the question of why. Why should I trust God in the midst of my suffering? Why is he worthy of my trust when it seems like he could end my suffering but he won't. And those, my friends, are very good questions. Which brings us finally to the fact that Job is not just the story of suffering. It's not just a story of Job trusting in God, but that this is actually a story of God himself. Let me show you what I mean. There are two extraordinarily important facts that inform the way that we ought to trust God and why we ought to trust him in the midst of suffering. One reminds us of his power and the other reminds us of his kindness, both of which are absolutely necessary for us to be able to have the kind of perspective that Job has. Let me explain both of them to you for a moment. First, uh, we're going to get to this, um, this chapter more thoroughly later on in our series, but I want to fast forward quickly to chapter 38 of the book of Job. Because something interesting happens there. After dozens of chapters where God is silent and Job's having these conversations with various friends, again, that we'll look at in the coming weeks, God finally speaks in chapter 38. And when he does, he speaks through this terrifying storm. Uh, after Job has questioned God thoroughly about his suffering, God then responds with thunder, and in his response in chapter 38, let me give you a little sampling of some of what God says. God says to Job, as he's being questioned, God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way and do they report to you? Here we are. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. 
These, this type of interrogation goes on for two long chapters. And what are we seeing there? The point is simply this. God shows up to Job after all this wrestling uh, and questioning. God shows up with power and he says, do you not know my power? The purity of my character, the wisdom and knowledge of me as the almighty. And as a result of that wisdom and power, Job, there are plans and purposes far beyond what you as a mere time-bound, space-bound, flesh-bound mortal could possibly comprehend. This reminds me of a, of a really great scene in the, the Lord of the Rings uh, in which Gandalf, if you remember the scene, he's insisting that Bilbo give up the magic ring. And at the suggestion, Bilbo gets really angry and accuses Gandalf of, of trying to take the ring from him. And in response, Gandalf, in essence, he, he peels back the curtain that hides his power as this great wizard. And he reveals himself as this terribly powerful man and says with a thundering voice, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. And then before his voice quiets down, he whispers, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. I mean, this is the kind of picture that we're seeing here. God is peeling back the curtain of his power before Job. God reveals himself as this awe-inducingly powerful one who as a result of his power ought to be trusted because in that power, he reveals himself mighty enough to have purposes beyond our comprehension, purposes designed to help us, not to harm us. In the words of Jeremiah 29, that God has plans for us, not to harm us, but plans to give us hope and a future. This is what God does with his power. He reveals to us he is capable of doing things beyond what we can comprehend. You know, just back to what I was saying earlier about the conversation that I was having with someone that if we just had enough faith that God would heal us, I actually find that to be an extraordinarily small view of God. It's such a small view of God to say, if God is actually truly faithful... And if I'm just faithful to him, then he will absolutely heal me. Yes, we believe that God is able to do that. But a big God is also able to take the very suffering that seems meaningless and pointless in my life and actually use it for something that in the long run is transcendently better than healing that I might experience now. And so on the one hand, right, this is a story of God here. And we ought to be able to trust God because he is that powerful, that big, that glorious, that mighty. But if God only showed up this way, we would actually have a very skewed view of him. Because to see God as only powerful also means that we're likely going to see him as also cold and indifferent to the suffering that we experience. Which is why not only do we see God as this powerful God, in control of all things, even our suffering, we also see God as a God of great kindness. You know, not only do we see that God reminds us of his, kind, or his power, but he also reminds us of his kindness. And how does he do that? That kindness is found in God's willingness to suffer as we suffer and to be in solidarity with his people. For there would be another innocent sufferer, one whose righteousness far exceeds that of Job, one who was truly blameless, truly sinless, 
who out of love for his people becomes, in the, in the words of Isaiah 53, he becomes a man of sorrows who took our pain and bore our suffering. It goes on to say, and, and though we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, God in his power does not seek to smote us. God in his power is not indifferent to our pain, indifferent to our pain, but rather in Jesus, we see a God who uses his power to take our suffering upon himself. The kindness of God is actually at the cross and at the work of Jesus, the one who steps into our suffering and pain. We can trust God in our suffering because he is powerful and his wisdom and purposes are beyond our comprehension, but he is also a kind God who comes near to us, suffers with us, redeems us, reminds us that the suffering of this world is not his intention for creation and that there are promises that he will make manifest at the renewal of all things. See, the book of Job, is, it's a story of suffering. It's a story of trust. But it's also this story of what God is doing amongst us. And it reminds us that as we suffer before God, we can trust in God because of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who has defeated all the effects of sin, the one who is God himself in the flesh. And this, my friends, shapes everything about how we approach suffering in this life. I want to end with this encouragement since in this series we're going to be constantly be coming back to uh, how we approach God in our suffering. Just with an example of what some of this looks like in very real practical life. Uh, about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> my wife, uh, she wrote an article chronicling uh, her experiences with a, a recent uh, autoimmune disease diagnosis and the fairly drastic changes in life that have come as a result. Uh, I'd highly recommend that you read the article. You can find it online. It's called Looking to Jesus When Your World Upends. There's uh, immense wisdom in it, and there's actually uh, some historical context and overlap with our church, uh, as she's very much been co-planter of our church. Um, and so it gives some context for how things have changed for her in recent days. But as she processed her own tension with the unexpected and life-changing diagnosis that's come, uh, and in particular, some of the moments of suffering that regularly come as a result, uh, she ends the article with a series of prayers that she finds incredibly formative for her, especially on the worst of days. And while in the article she says more about each prayer point, uh, I just want to give you the, the, the main prayer point themselves and encourage you to go and read the rest. But here's some of what the outworking of this kind of trust in God looks like. She says, here are some of the ways I've been praying through my days. Lord, remind me that even in my losses, your goodness and mercy are ever present. Lord, would you make it so that this suffering refines me? Lord, help me believe this is where you want me. 
Lord, give me opportunities to care for others through this experience. Lord, keep me grieving as one with hope. And then she ends with this. Since scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death, suffering and death should be the end of me. Since Romans 3 teaches that none have done good and therefore none are deserving of life. But in his mercy, Christ intervened on my behalf. Christ's incarnation, perfect life, substitutionary atonement, and resurrection mean I can have hope that my suffering is temporary. Because of Jesus, the day will come when God will wipe away my last tears of mourning and pain are vanquished. Because of Jesus, God is making all things new, even me. As 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon said, in heaven we shall see we had not one trial too many. Help me believe this earth side too, Lord. The hope and the joy that is available to us in the midst of suffering is the result of Jesus and what he has done with his great power, which is to step into our pain, giving us hope that there is life and joy and fulfillment and restoration on the other side of that pain. My prayer would be, over the course of this Lent season, we would find that joy, even in the midst of whatever suffering and hardship we're experiencing now. May Jesus meet us there. I trust that he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us in the midst of all that we are experiencing. Lord, you're not a God who is indifferent to our pain and our suffering. You're not a God who is powerless to do anything about it. You are a God who is all-powerful, glorious and mighty. And with that great power, you do not distance yourself from us, but rather, with that power, you draw near to us in Jesus. It's Jesus who gives us hope and joy, even in the midst of our suffering, because it's in Jesus that we see your great kindness to us. The one willing to suffer with us, identify with us. And so, Lord, I pray in this Lent season, as we spend time in reflection, as we spend time longing for that day when we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that we would also be able to take time to reflect on the suffering that we experience now. That, Lord, we might actually be able to see you anew through that suffering. Would you meet us there by the power of your spirit, Lord? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.